from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a man that is as mysterious as his writing. Often referred to as the enigma of Instagram, he is the author of a novel that defies genre as well as convention. He's joining us today to talk about his novel as well as his craft. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Braden Riddick. Braden, welcome to the show. Vance, thank you for having me, my man. It's a privilege. Absolutely. It's good to have you. Just want to thank you for joining me. I know you are a father of two and a husband to one. So thank you for taking the time to sit down and talk a little shop. Most certainly. So I've heard you referred to as the enigma of Instagram. I personally like to refer to you as the Mindscape architect because you do such a great job in your book of using setting, emotion, and pacing to produce a, a vivid, moving picture in the reader's mind. So do you have a creative background, either with your day job or any other hobbies that naturally lend themselves to writing fiction? Or does your ability to write just exist in a vacuum? First off, Vince, let me thank you for that. That is outstanding to hear, and especially the way you put it. I've, I've mentioned one time, and I don't I don't know if it was in a post or just sharing conversationally on Instagram about how I had failed creative writing in high school. And it wasn't because I wasn't creative at the time. I certainly hadn't had my uh, mental doors opened as much as I, I have now, naturally. But the reason I had failed is I had showed up the day that the uh, seniors were supposed to present their final project. So long story short, I ended up failing the class because the teacher uh, was inflexible in that regard. You know, and that always stuck with me. And that was the only class I ever failed. And I always said, I, she won't give me a chance to redeem myself, but I'm going to find a way to redeem myself. So I, I think slowly over time, the combination of my love for, for film, good quality film, David Lynch style stuff. Uh, the the ambiguous, beautiful mystery that he can present. We've seen it in Twin Peaks. We've seen it in Mulholland Drive, along with some of that foundational horror, even the the cheesy stuff, the 80s, you know, the Jason Voorhees, the Freddy Krueger on the film side of things. But I had never liked to write. I didn't like to read. And at first, every writer is a reader. And it wasn't until my initial uh, excuse me, my second stint of college when I started reading for fun, reading fiction, and that was Dean Koontz. I was introduced to Dean Koontz and just devoured book after book of his. And 
eventually found Stephen King. And that's when it happened. That's when it really, things were really set in motion. I got lost in one of those Dean Koontz books and one of those creepy worlds. I said, I have to find a way to recreate this in my own way, you know, using my own unique eclectic sources of inspiration and character recreate something like that. And day to day, no, I'm more of a man of science. Uh, if I were to put it in the archaic Lovecraft way of speaking, I'm more of a, a numbers guy. So the creative arts, it kind of, uh, it's, it's serendipitous in a sense, completely unrelated to my day to day and what I would normally, uh, develop in the normal routine of things. Excellent question though. And I hope that answers it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So you said in an interview that your inspiration to write the book Ungodly began with a vision of a figure in a tower illuminated by a red light. Basically, the first thing that Amanda Baker sees, if I'm getting That's that correct. right. Okay. That is correct. So can you talk about the circumstances surrounding the vision, where you were, what was going on in your life? That's another great question. As a matter of fact, I remember exactly where I was, and it was a very chill, relaxed scenario where I think I'm watching a ball game or watching something on TV in the recliner. And this was, this has to be 10 years ago. Every bit, yeah, when the initial vision struck me. And I just, I looked to the side and I looked out, looked toward my window, and then suddenly I'm somewhere else and I'm seeing it from Amanda's perspective. And to try to define and pinpoint where such a such a thought originates its source it's a fool's game as far as i'm concerned i can't tell you where exactly it came from it just it's let's call it a left field insight you know that just came and you know i was not in the position that i'm in currently things were a lot more unsteady at the time and naturally i was writing a lot more and it was a means of therapeutic expression so I think the wheels, the inner workings, the mental wheels were turning and potentially exploring things of that nature a little more. So that might have led to it. But I was more of, I would call it uh, experimentation of, of, of things that aren't readily discussed or, or, or actively discussed. I was, it was a phase where, uh, you know, man, uh, you're exploring different personas and you hit that one where you've been introduced to a great sum of diverse sources of inspiration of you've been exposed to a lot of different uh, mediums of art, of people, of cultures. And then suddenly it just uh, it all just erupts into a uh, into eventually a cohesive plan, a cohesive idea turned into a story. And, uh, yeah, it, you know, naturally it didn't come overnight. The, uh, the initial vision came and uh, I mentioned it before on a prior podcast. It's, it's kind of hard in retrospect to think that what is ungodly by and large originated from that, uh, that single seed, that initial vision, uh, of Amanda Baker seeing that. And, uh, cool that you mentioned it. So I was, uh, listening to you on the reading sirens podcast. And uh, you had said that the novel almost didn't get published because of getting, you know, bogged down in the in the hustle and bustle of everyday life. But that during the pandemic, you had some downtime that you didn't normally have. So what was it like for you dur during the uh, pandemic? And what were the circumstances that were the impetus for channeling what I imagine was a lot of stress into the artistic outlet of finishing the book? It's another Extremely well articulated question. 
events. Unless you were living under a rock, you experienced some degree of stress and strain when initially COVID struck and there's the fear, there's the, uh, I mean, people were laid off, people were unemployed. It was a state of turmoil, of unrest. And fortunately, I was still able to provide for mine, but I worked from home and, you know, parenting to this day. I love my two boys uh, like nobody's business there. They're my world. Uh, but parenting in a pandemic, uh, especially two young boys while also trying to work and, and manage your projects, your day to day affairs. That's uh, that's tricky business, man. And I had to find a way to to distract myself from that. And the best way, uh, in addition to my wife always encouraging me, spurring me on about continuing with ungodly as, and then, then there's my editor who, uh, propelled the inspiration as well. But it was, it was truly that, that outright need to, uh, immerse myself into a distraction and it needed work. I told my editor, I said, listen, I generally don't like deadlines in my creative endeavors, but I need to set, I need you to set me a hard deadline. <laughs> that I'm going to have this manuscript on your desk. And she did. And it was a tense period because of how much work had to be done. But I knew I needed that deadline to reach the finish line. So, you know, I call it a silver lining, man. Um, it's a silver lining. I, I've said it once. I'll say it again. I, I would never wish a worldwide pandemic on anyone, but some good did come from it. Uh, least of all, uh, ungodly. And, not for my sake, but because readers said this would have been a disservice if this book was not published. So, absolutely, yeah. It sounds like you were kind of using the the art of war strategy, where the uh, uh, troops are backed up against a body of water, so retreat is not an option. <laughs> you need, <laughs> need that deadline. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> the passion was there, but you got to understand there had been so much time and energy put in. The finished product is nowhere near what it originally was. There was a lot of work to be done. And it took a lot of time and understanding and, and learning how to bring the best out of the story. And, uh, you know, at times uh, the motivation simply was not there, nor was the time and a combination of, of those two. It lingered and it languished in a drawer, as the author's note said. So 2020, what a year, man, in so many ways. <laughs> Yeah. Good God. So who is this editor that seems like was instrumental in this coming to light? Who who can we give a pat on the back for encouraging Chris, you? <laughs> Kristen Hamilton. Kristen, Kristen Hamilton. Hamilton. Okay. Uh, her website is Kristen Corrects, which is a very catchy as well as uh, astute and correct website name because she's a great editor. Um, I'm forever... I'm grateful for her uh, encouraging me to continue uh, because, you know, even before 2020, uh, there'd been numerous occasions that she had mentioned uh, ungodly and, and, and continuing to, to work on it. So absolutely grateful for her. And we need those external sources of motivation at times. I don't care how committed you are to any given task. Sometimes it, you need that pat on the back, that pat on the butt and say, hey, come on. You put too much into this already. Finish the job. 
So do you do any editing yourself as you go, or do you just leave it all to somebody that's far removed from the, the project? See, that's the problem that can introduce a problem. When I initially started writing anything, and even at the beginning of Ungodly, I adopted the Dean Kuntz method that is, in essence, to polish each and every page before moving on to the next. Yeah, I remember hearing that. Yeah. And, you know, doing that, and initially when I started writing, concentrating on shorter fiction, even then, much shorter style fiction, or even having novel concepts in mind where I'm trying to pace for the purpose of a, of a novel length piece. And you doing that, you get through 10, 15 pages and I'm like, geez, man, I'm burnt out on the story. And worst of all, I lost a sense of story, worrying so much each and every page, polishing it to the nth degree that it just, it burned me out on the on the concept itself, and I lost a, a sense of story so often. And early on in Ungodly, there might have been a, maybe a chapter or two that was similar to that. But ultimately, once once it got rolling, and once enough characters were introduced, and the scene began to set itself, and then events were unfolding, you know, because once once I set the scene and, and the pieces are in place, then then things are going to start moving. There's enough kinetic power and energy from from different angles that things are just going to start moving. So, you know, once that happens, there's not a lot. It's just it's just going with it. I was able to write more free flow and concentrating on story as opposed to to polishing every word, every sentence and paragraph on every page. And, and that's an acquired sense of style, Vince, that it took me failing in other projects uh, that I, I buried and and just put away uh, through in a junkyard, so to speak. But it was because of losing a sense of story and getting burned out, concentrating too much on the polishing as I go. Yeah, I remember uh, seeing that interview with Kuntz when he was explaining that process. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, that sounds like such a a beautiful way to do it, kind of like a, a sculptor just, you know, making multiple passes. But in practice, I can totally see that derailing the flow by just kind of every page just becomes this rut you get into. Yes. Yeah. Well, you write yourself. Mm-hmm. You, you write. And now I don't know if you've published anything, but I've heard some of your audio. Mm-hmm. Have you put out any uh, anything in print? No, nothing in print yet. Um, yeah, I've never really thought about that. It would probably be better in print because I'm <laughs> honestly the stuff I put out in audio I'm I'm wondering if I'm going to get kicked off of uh, the the uh, directories or my podcast host for it being too graphic. But uh, uh, I, there's there's plenty of uh, what you would call splatterpunk out there that, you know, they they have no problem putting it in print and getting it published and distributed. So uh, that is true. maybe that would be the way to go. There's a market for every book out there, Vince. Mm-hmm. You know that. Oh, yeah. There is yes. the, the, the the only question is how long it takes to find it, mm. that audience. Yeah. yeah. Well, so how long did it take you? I mean, this might be a difficult question because it sounds like it spanned over quite a few years in different stages. But how long would you say collectively it took for you to write Ungodly? It is a tough one, Vince, because there was starts and stops that sudden availability to write, the sudden urge uh, when momentum was going, and then 
Not to mention, I, I've, I've got to keep this in mind. Uh, two major life-changing events took place after I began the story. The first of which was getting married. I'm still happily married. She still puts up with me. I'm, I'm <laughs> grateful for that. And then there was having our first child. So you're talking two big time life changing events. Absolutely. And, and let me assure you, uh, when that child comes, you know, I had always been told how much it changes your world, but until you experience it firsthand, you do not understand. I mean, your world is turned upside down. Uh, so there was a stint after our firstborn came about that I simply could not write at all. Uh, and when I got back to the story, it was so dark because where I left off, as a matter of fact, it's right after uh, Amanda Baker had that run in. It was the end of, of part two when Amanda had just avoided the bad violence at the Hebelow house. And then she took off into the night. That's where I came back to. And I was like, how do I? That's quite a, I, quite a cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah. I said, where do I go from here? My wife just brought this beautiful human being into the world. And this is where I come back to, you know. So fortunately, not right after that, I don't think, but soon, soon after we're, we're introduced to Brian Jackson and I'll, I'll be honest with you, Vince, Brian and Will's relationship and their, their banter and their romance, if you will, that, that kind of got me back into it. I needed a sense of levity. I needed a sense of uh, something lighthearted. Having just been introduced to our firstborn child, I needed something that was a little bit light to get back into a story that was already so dark and heavy and, and not to mention where I had left off. So Brian and Will's humor got me back into it. And then I you know, it's a roller coaster there. It has its highs and lows uh, in terms of emotion and uh, a sense of mood. Uh, there's there's humor and there's certainly a lot of darkness, but definitely then humor was needed on my end. Were there points at the in the book where there's something, you know, particularly sinister or dark happening where you've had to like just, OK, I need to put this down for the day or for the week because it's Absolutely. just just kind of affecting your psyche a little too much? Absolutely. And I've never experienced a writing zone so intense as, as when Karen Hebelow met her demise. And I remember when I emerged from the experience, it was so eerie, the feeling, because I had never experienced anything like that. And I had to get out of the house. You know, I, I'm writing on my phone because I'm listening to music and I can still remember the song. And in fact, sometimes I'll, I'll reread that scene listening to that song. But of course, I can never recreate the initial experience because that was that that was that first time that was that initial creation of it. But definitely that scene, I had to put it away. And, and when I got back to it the next day, when I when I reread it, the word that came to mind, as I mentioned in that prior podcast, you might have heard was ungodly. And that's where the name came about, because it was truly an ungodly scene. And, uh, it's, it disturbed me that, that I had conceived that. And, and it was, it was the zone in which I wrote it that was, you know, it's, it's one of those things I, I've experienced, you know, playing basketball or something where I'm, I'm just hitting every shot. I feel like I'm throwing a ball into the ocean as the saying goes, <laughs> but never had I experienced something on the writing side of things where everything is just so clearly seen and conveyed because that that's the hardest part for me as a writer 
is seeing the image in my head, effectively translating that onto paper or uh, on the screen for a reader. How can I make them see what's in my mind and make it as vivid as possible? And I've heard nothing, but that scene was extremely vivid and intense uh, from feedback. And but definitely that there were probably other moments in the book, Vince, definitely some of the emotional, more emotional moments where, you know, you get in these characters heads and you just you feel it and, and it takes its toll. Even if it's fictional, it, it takes its toll because ultimately you may not realize it at the time, but uh, you're exercising a demon of your own. It may be faceless at the time, but soon enough, it, you, you'll identify what that was. And, uh, you know, and that, that's, that's really what it's all about getting down and, and finding a way to find therapeutic expression and relief through, uh, the beautiful medium of fiction. Absolutely. Well, so you kind of, um, mentioned what my next question was going to be with writing on your phone. There's the standard laptop, but I've also heard of authors writing on old school mechanical typewriters like Cormac McCarthy, um, as well as Chuck Palahniuk just uses a pen and a notebook. But from actually something you posted today, I think you said you wrote 90% of it on your phone. Is that correct? correct? That is correct. So can you talk a little bit about what that process is like? Because that's, that's a first for me hearing that somebody wrote such a large amount of a novel on a phone. And it's strange for me, even listening to it or even thinking about it now, at least compared to everyone else that I see and the device they use to write. You see a lot of typewriters, and I think that's awesome. Brittany Johnson, for one, uh, has a typewriter that she, uh, by the way, named Roland. Uh-huh. Um, you know, no mistake there. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm going to say the first couple chapters, we, we meet Eldon, we meet Amanda. I'm going to say the first couple chapters, few chapters, were most certainly all written on a laptop. But it got to a point where I did better writing on the move. And I was always so active, always going, uh, that it was easier for me to just pull out my phone and write something down on, on, on the go, uh, little notes here and there. And eventually that turned into... Okay, well, let me take this a step further. Instead of using just a notepad or whatever, I found just before I boarded a plane to LA, I downloaded an app called iWriter. And on that flight, I just, man, I just, I, I, I wrote a scene of Amanda Baker and really, I met her resolve, her character. And consequently, I became more connected to the story. And from that moment on, I was like, yeah, I, I'm going to, I'm going to finish this story. And now that I know I have the luxury and the convenience of writing in this handheld device anywhere I go, I said, I'm most definitely going to finish this story because it, it did. It, I was no longer restrained to the requirements of having to sit down in front of a desk at a laptop at a desktop. Mm-hmm. Right. And that that was the game changer. And not only that, you know, there were times where when I would eventually get that time to sit down in front of the computer and I, I would be glaring at that, that white screen. You know, when the time finally presented itself, I may not be in that organic flow of writing that I preferred to, to create. And that daunting, that white screen was just so daunting and, and, and massive, at least compared to the tiny screen of a phone. So you fill up that screen of the phone so much quicker, especially on an app like I was using that it just, before you know it, 
I've got a lot of data and I'm slowly but surely emailing it to me. That was my best file. So, and let me tell you, the worst, I would never recommend this method. Okay. I did it, but I would never recommend this because writing it is the easy part. Formatting and keeping everything in order. That was the trickiest part. Mm. The formatting errors and glitches that would come about from that writing app when trying to convert it into a basic Word document problems were there were plentiful. I'll say that, but <laughs> sure enough, man, I, I would I would wager right about ninety percent of the novel okay. written on the phone. So there wasn't really anywhere that you did the majority of your writing. You just you felt the urge or the inspiration, the stream of consciousness came and you just whipped your phone out wherever you were and just committed some some text. There were some times where it was like that. But don't get me wrong. Once I reached a certain point, 20, probably tw late 2014, early 2015, I reached a point in the story where I felt so much momentum. And I was drawn to the story so much. I was really eager to see where things were developing. Like I, I, I was aiming for mile markers in the story and some of which I hit, but there were still enough opportunities and different ways for things to branch off that I wasn't entirely sure what might come about at certain junctures. I'll say that. Mm -hmm. But I reached a point where the only time, like I, I've got to get in at least if I can dedicate one hour Give me one hour of time. I can finish this story. I can finish the first draft by early next year. And that was end of near end of 2014. This was, I finally finished the first draft March of 2015. Again, that's 511 pages. That was a, a monster overweight, <laughs> but I committed to waking up at 4:30 every morning and writing until 5.30 when I had to leave the house and, and head to work. And I would get up. I had a, a steady routine. I would get that coffee brewing. And a dad at that point, appreciative of, of silence in a quiet house, mm. <laughs> I was able to fall into my element and create in that caffeinated silence so easily because, of course, I've got all my headphones. I'm, I'm pumping my tunes. And you know, by the way, I'm, I'm listening to whatever song I need to evoke a certain emotion or feeling to best write for the scene. That's what I'm listening to. Sometimes I would listen to a song on repeat 30 times in a row if I need to prolong that feeling or, or that vibe. You know, I, I'm coming down, I'm drinking my coffee and I'm, I'm listening to my music. This is between 4.30 and 5.30 a.m. Um, because by that point, I had gotten into such a rhythm and it was so easy writing on my phone. And once the momentum got rolling, I, <laughs> I didn't want to say it. Don't, if it's, if it's not broken, don't mm -hmm. fix it. Absolutely. As the saying goes. And again, it wasn't as easy for me to, I, I, I never liked the restraints of, of sitting at a desk at a laptop. I, I work at a stand up desk. If that tells you anything. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I can. I can lower it when I need to, but I like the ability to move around and pace. I'll put on my tunes and that's how I really zone in. And especially when I'm writing or, or needing to, to zone in on, on what I'm working on. So that beautiful caffeinated silence, mm -hmm. uh, I was really able to be productive. And uh, man, that was, and that's actually, that was before child number two. So I can remember. With the caffeine was so much more effective 
at that stage of my life. Now it takes <laughs> the ratio of what it takes to achieve that that caffeine high is four to one these days. Like two cups like. of coffee and an energy drink. <laughs> yeah. 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 Good stuff, man. Well, it sounds like you have a, a, a few different ways that you adapted. Um other than writing on your phone and listening to music, do you have any any other tricks that you employ? Like one guy I interviewed would write a few pages, then have his computer's dictation software read his material out loud. And by hearing that, he was able to see if the writing was clunky and didn't flow well. <laughs> so. That's that is an excellent idea. And in fact, I didn't discover that until um, I'm going to say probably the third, maybe fourth rewrite somewhere in there. Uh, but that is that's an invaluable tool to use. Invaluable. Of course, you have so many options nowadays in terms of uh, who you want to narrate your work, right? Who who do you want reading these words to you? But that is, it's critical because I think that's one of the most underrated aspects of self-editing is having it read aloud to you. Not taking advantage of that function. I don't know. I think that's a little negligent, to be <laughs> honest with you. Of course, you need to read it aloud yourself to make sure that it flows and that it sounds right. And that if someone is reading this aloud, this is how it's going to sound. But you also need someone else to read it to you because you know what you're intending to say. So even if you've accidentally omitted a word here or there, you in your brain, you know what you were trying to say. So you can fill in those missing words if there are any, right? But if you hear it read aloud by a, a program, or even a real person, they'll identify that error or that missing word, right? It's beneficial in certainly more ways than one, but uh, strongly encourage that. Well, so I heard you, I was going to ask if you outlined, and I heard you talking about mile markers. Is it more of something that you just kind of kept in your head? You're like, I don't know how I'm going to get to this mile marker, but it's going to be an interesting ride. There were certain, yes, um, I don't like the idea of outright outlining. No, nothing formal, nothing structured or organized as far as, you know, I, I know some guys who are extremely particular in this regard and finicky and, and will create Excel spreadsheets, uh, with itemized plot points and, you know, formulating and, uh, and outline. But that, that's not my style. I had certain mile markers throughout the story. Uh, paced, spaced, I should say, uh, so far apart. I have to have some aim, right? You don't want to, you're not going to set sail out there on the open sea without some course and direction, right? You have to have a destination, at least a vague destination. And I had options, right? I had options, but in between those mile markers, in between the, those posts, uh, spaced evenly or, or spaced however far apart. It's filling in the gaps. That's where the true creativity comes about. When you begin to, to form those, the meat on the bones, that's where you get surprised as a storyteller. When you start giving these characters a little bit of free will, and that may sound strange. And I always thought it sounded strange the first time I heard Dean Koontz talk about it. But again, once I felt that once these characters are established and you give them free will to act and behave as, as, their characteristics and persona would suggest they would behave. That's when the story really takes on a kinetic energy, uh, all its own. 
And at one point I felt like I was being just pulled along. And that's when it was just, it was so beautiful. Uh, so much fun. Yeah. You'll have to forgive me, man. I go off on these tangents. <laughs> no problem. Um, so this may shock most people that have read your book, but I really loved the character of Eldon, which may sound strange, but the reason is because I love the archetype of the antihero. And even though Eldon isn't an antihero per se, in fact, he has a very small role in the book. He has the qualities of an antihero. He's very flawed. He's done horrible things to his wife. He's an alcoholic, but he still has just enough humanity to mourn the loss of his son and what seems like feel genuine love when he sees him for the first time. Are your characters based on real people? And can you talk a little bit about character development? Uh, yet another stellar question, Vince. Oh, man. You know, I can say this uh, clear cut, clean and obvious. No one has... Uh, remarked on Eldon's character as you just did and expounded on what makes him unique, especially the, the anti hero angle. That was, that is very insightful. There's a lot of characters in that book. 20, I want to say 25, 27, right around in there. And there are no doubt characters in there that reflect people I know or uh, maybe situations they've been in, maybe qualities or traits they might possess. But by and large, I've always considered myself pretty observant. And I won't say I'm an outright people watcher because that sounds like someone who just stares. But occasionally it is good to just take a look around and be receptive to behavior and the way, you know, folks behave around you. And, you know, I think just my exposure to such a, a broad diversity of, of people from, from different walks of life and, you know, starting out kind of in a lower situation, overcoming some odds initially, being exposed to some uh, unfavorable situations, uh, I should say, that uh, I guess these separate points of exposure over time, they just kind of materialize into these characters. Again, it's one of those things that you don't necessarily see at the time of conception at the time you're introduced to, to these characters, to these, these traits and qualities. But in the end, you begin to, to see this may not have been a conscious effort, but subconsciously there was clearly an impact here. And, uh, there's parallels you might draw, you know, when, when you're looking back at introspection. But for the most part, I'm fortunate to say, cause there was a lot of bad in that book. <laughs> um, for the most part, not too close to home, any of those characters or scenarios. There are certainly some, but by and large, all 20, you know, 27 or thereabout, they were, uh, uh, they were just those characters that I, I happened to have met in my tour of Calisade Mountain. And some were much, much better than others, as we learned. <laughs> so there's not a, I guess there's not a particular one that you identify with in any way. You know, Brian and I share certain similarities, but he's he, for one, he's much cooler than I am. And, uh, <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> he I don't know. He overcame a lot. He was up against some pretty tough odds. But his 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 resilience, Amanda's resilience and sense of resolve is, is really the driving force behind the novel. 
Uh, but his certainly didn't hurt matters. And it was very inspiring to learn about him and what he had went through. And, and uh, you know, I think in the end, having went back and read that book, and I've read it a few times, of course, but front to back, when you read it truly as a reader, as best you can, unbiased, I feel like he showed signs of, you know, his ultimate fate early on, or at least his his sense of, I, I think he might have hinted at where he was going uh, if the opportunity presented itself. But for the most part, like I said, it's uh, qualities. Certainly there's there's similarities there to a few different characters and, and there's certain the sports aspect is what Brian and I most are most similar in. Well, can you tell me a little bit, uh, something I'm interested in is the process of writing from the female perspective. How, how was that process writing through the perspective of uh, Amanda Baker? That was probably one of the more challenging aspects initially, but that was a challenge that I had deliberately set out to do. And for one, it was she was the one who had initially seen the silhouette in the red room that led to the book in general. But I had written something prior. Uh, I've written a few different things. And that female perspective is you got to be careful these days, man, especially <laughs> with there's a sense of unrest with how male authors present uh, females and the stereotypes. Uh, a lot of females and rightly so are not are not happy about that. So. What I did was, first of all, I just took my observations and I, I've got a lot of female friends, totally platonic friends that I think so highly of. And my observation of them and my listening and my attempt to understand their place, where they're coming from, you know, came to form what I would assume Amanda Baker to be like. But I didn't stop there. You know, obviously I had my wife read the book. Before it was long before it was published, the first draft, she was the first to read it. But I also had the presence of mind to say, well, you can't rely on your bias because you're a male and you're going to like what you wrote, even when it was fluffy and overweight. Writers love to hear themselves talk. And, <laughs> and, and that's why you're listening to me now too, too much. I'm kidding, man. Uh, but also, I, I can't put too much stock in my wife. And her feedback, if she says she likes it, and it sounds like a, a genuine female perspective because there's bias there as well. So I said, I'm going to pinpoint three different female editors of fairly high esteem, and I'm going to get them to provide me uh, a manuscript assessment. Fortunately, I, I knew with that manuscript assessment, Amanda being the lead, certainly the female lead, I knew I would get feedback in that regard. And if I didn't, I uh, requested it. They said that she was a likable female with a, a backstory that is relatable and her, her actions and motivations seemed authentic. And I didn't question it any more than that. If I get, if I get three check marks from, and we're talking one of which, the very first who, who gave me the most inspirational, motivating feedback I, I ever got that really flipped my switch and, and made me realize that I was I had some talent when she shared her feedback in regards to, to the story itself and my capabilities as a writer. But she she was she especially remarked on Amanda and her backstory. And this esteemed editor was a former acquiring editor of Penguin Random House. Okay. She's seen the very best of the best. 
And the feedback that she shared with me, uh, listen, man, Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant might as well have walked up to me and said, you've got an excellent jump shot. You, <laughs> you belong in the NBA. You know, that was the equivalent in the writing world. From that point forward, there was no convincing me otherwise, right? I, I knew I had something here. It was just a matter of when I was going to get the time to to truly iron out all the wrinkles, make it right, and uh, be able to sleep soundly at night. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to, I want to put out a well-polished product. And that was, you know, Amanda's character writing from her perspective was a crucial part of that. Uh, thank you for asking. Kind of a, a nitpicky question. What is the etymology, I guess you would say, of the moniker of Throbwalker? Well, first off, what do you think? I Honestly, how Throb is incorporated, the only thing I could think of is that there's like this refractory period where they're just completely catatonic and then they kind of throb back to life. But that's as, as close as I could get. And I think that um, that encapsulates it pretty well. You know, it's funny. I've, ha I've had a few people remark on that. They say, uh, a buddy of mine, we chat on Instagram a good bit and he always sends voice messages. And while he was reading, he was sending me, uh, he was, he was letting me know of his, of his progress and how he was doing, uh, what he, what he thought here and there. He said, dude, throb walkers. He said, is that original? <laughs> he said, that's badass, man. I, he said, how did you come up with that? You know, for one, there was, the throb mentioned throughout Isaac Lectus mentioned, uh, you know, the sense of the throb and it was mentioned by other characters as well, feeling that, that sort of gravitational pull, that sort of, sort of dull throb of a headache. And, uh, before you know it, we meet the throb walkers, man. And, um, that was a fun sequence to write. Uh, the, the reanimation of the throb walkers, maybe the, the frozen postcard spoiler alert. Uh, but uh, I've heard some good feedback in that regard. And, and that's, that's cool because, you know, certain scenes you really, when you see it crystal clear on the visual front and you hope that you translate it well onto the page and then you get confirmation and validation by uh, hearing it from, from multiple readers. That's when it, man, that's when it really sinks in and feels good. Well, so kind of piggybacking off of that scene you were talking about without giving away any spoilers. Um, at the end, the scene that involves the song peace in the Valley. Now yeah. I'd never heard that song before. So I looked it up and I listened to a version sung by uh, Randy Travis. And then I think another one sung by Elvis because I just wanted to get a picture of the scene in my head. And, um, the juxtaposition of calm music with intense violence is really eerie for some reason. The uh, the scene that was immediately brought to my mind that was similar was the scene in uh, Reservoir Dogs when the cop yes. is getting his ears sliced off by Mr. Blonde and you've got stuck in the middle with you playing in the background. Um, <laughs> so, yes. uh, how what did a you, reference. Yeah. How did you come up with the idea to set such a chaotic, violent scenario with that particular song? So for one, you hit the nail on the head with that, that, that stark juxtaposition of, uh, it's kind of like 
I, I liken it to that, that evil child, that, that, that adorable on the surface child with that evil laugh when suddenly there's something ominous about, it. you know, there's that, there's that evil childish giggle that just is wrong. It's out of place. In that moment, Lectus had a vision and had heard that song in that vision of, uh, you know, peace in the valley. And that's one of those moments, man, kind of like the, Kind of like the silhouette, the initial scene that inspired it all that just came in so crystal clear and it creeped me out because I imagined it so, so vividly. And I was just, I was like, this is giving me serious willies. If I just hope I'm able to, to translate this properly and do it justice, because if I do, it's really going to, you know, raise some hairs. And yeah, man, uh, you hit the nail on the head. It's that, it's that true stark contrast that just, it makes things stand still. And, uh, it's just, it's compelling and it, it's just, it's just so wrong that it works and it, and it works pretty damn well. And uh, I appreciate you marking on, remarking on it. It's just like you're overcome with this weird cognitive dissonance. Like this is, yes. this isn't right, but my God, it's, uh, it's enjoyable. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if this was your intention or not, but it seems that with the two examples of Amanda being in the position she's in and Brian's actions in the climax of the book, an overarching theme of the book seems to be self-sacrifice. Am I correct in that at all? You'd be hard pressed for anyone, uh, to make a strong argument against that. I seem to get that interpretation as well. Was that a, a conscious effort? No, no, it was not. But again, sometimes these books without, you know, I didn't come, I didn't come into this project, into the story with, with some type of, uh, altruistic vision, some type of illusions of delivering some, some grand message, of course, but ultimately, uh, when the final period is placed and you go back and you see and you read it as a whole, uh, the sum of its parts and, and you can't help but get that in, in impression that, uh, self-sacrifice is a essential theme of the novel. Are there others in there? Yeah, I, I think so, but that's most certainly. And, and as you mentioned, Brian's actions, uh, that, that kind of, solidifies that like like no other instance if there was ever any question that kind of uh that confirms mm -hmm. so the tower a real eerie fixture of the story was it metaphorical in any way you know looking back it's it's strange it's strange even now uh seeing the true purpose or the true backstory of the tower what uh, what did we learn we learned that it possibly of a cult construct maybe of a of a military installation some type of covert deal i've always enjoyed some of those undercover operations that some of those stories even if they're just conspiracy theories or whatever about potential contact made means of contact made with another kind with uh I don't know, a, a, a means or an attempt to communicate elsewhere. And I, I think it's safe to say that we learned that this tower in the story was perceivably the 
the means of communication, if not control, uh, of a civilization, uh, in a sense, to a degree. And I remember one reader remarked on it, and she had said, my writing reminded her of early Stephen King, which I certainly appreciated because he was certainly a huge inspiration. And then she went on to say that The Tower made her think of the Dark Tower series and made a reference to that. The thing is, that is not true because I actually stopped. I never even got to see The Dark Tower. I stopped after book four, I want to say. I don't know if you've read the Dark Tower series. No, I've seen. I remember it, but I never did read it. Yeah, extremely popular. And of course, you'll, you'll see a lot of it uh, on, the, on the Instagram platform. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of books. I think it's a seven-book series, maybe. Maybe another one. But I stopped at book four, so I, I really it had really no affiliation to the Dark Tower concerning Stephen King. But it, again, man... Uh, it was one of those crystal clear visuals that ultimately surfaced and served a huge purpose as we, as we learned. And beyond that, there, that's one angle I would love to, to leave open for interpretation with the potential of, I will not rule up a follow up down the line, um, to further explore that. And I would hate to, to show that hand too early. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. Um, one of the characters in the story has a problem with addiction, which I think adds a dark, compelling element to any story, not only because of the tragic nature of the affliction, but because it's so prevalent, I would venture to guess that there's no one that hasn't had an experience with addiction, either themselves or indirectly through friends and family. So it's an element of the story that most people can relate to. Do you have any experience with addiction directly or indirectly? Absolutely. Uh, family members. Fortunately, I haven't uh, dealt with outright addiction. Don't get me wrong. I have my vices just like the next guy, but I've been able to uh, manage and, and, and moderate that. Moderation is the key for me in anything, uh, but most certainly uh, way, way, way too many in my circle. Those close to me have dealt with addiction uh, are dealing with addiction of a certain nature and it, it's tough. And most certainly the, uh, the presence of that in the novel was most certainly a way of, of my coming to terms of, of reconciliation of ex acceptance, maybe of, of learning how to accept and, and deal with such things that there are certain things you can control, but the rest, all you can do is your best and you, you leave it alone. The book in that regard helped come to terms with, with some of those that unfortunately was faced with addiction and, uh, some of which ultimately, uh, lost the battle. And for anyone out there who is battling uh, addiction, best wishes all the way. Definitely. A, uh, another theme in your book is the concept of lost civilizations. It's interesting to find fossils from civilizations that no longer exist, but at the same time, it's kind of terrifying because you wonder, you know, have we got it down? Are we going to survive and continue to evolve or are we going to drive ourselves into extinction? So it's very good fodder for a horror story. Are there any stories real or fictional about lost civilizations that inspired you to inject that theme into your book? Yes, absolutely. For one, it's the big concept 
that layered loaded mystery that revolves around an entire people gone missing, right? Uh, I mean, that, that's, it's never going to not make people wonder, I feel like. So that sense of wonder, you know, is strong in me and most certainly phantoms by Dean Koontz. Uh, explores. So I don't know if you've read that one. Phantoms. I don't think so. It's predicated on the conversation of lost civilizations. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's the Roanoke mention, which has been played three ways from Sunday in film and in fiction, at least in some reference or mention. And beyond phantoms, I'm sure there were a few they're eluding me at the moment, but what could potentially be responsible for wiping out an entire civilization? We're not just talking about, you know, a psychopath with a knife ringing doorbells or opening windows late at night. We're talking about something with the capacity of, of wiping out a civilization. And it was fun to explore. It, it got dark, obviously, and it got strange at times. It got weird, but you know, once you start opening up those doors and, and you fall into a rabbit hole, you don't know what you're going to find all the time. I certainly didn't expect to find what I did, but it, it was well worth the ride. I'll say that. So I've heard you speak about Stephen King and Kuntz is supernatural thriller slash horror. Is that the genre you gravitate toward or do you read any other genres? I love suspense. You know, I, I'm not crazy about hardcore extreme horror by any uh, any sense. I love suspense. I love thrillers with a degree of horror. And you read the book. It's hard to really pigeonhole that book in any one category. And that's by design. I'm too tough to contain in, in any one lane, any one category. I'm not big on labels in that regard. So be it. But supernatural thrillers, I do enjoy and I love reading them, and when they're done right, man, they can be so much fun. It can be an overplayed trope uh, if careful consideration isn't given to uh, the mythos, to the uh, the mythology, and the spin on the why, the how, things of that nature. Because let's face it, there's a lot of supply out there. There's a there's a lot of different ways that supernatural thriller has been spun, and uh, course, in recent years, we've seen a lot of the, a lot of recycled stuff. I'll say this. I don't know if you've read any Adam Neville, one of my favorite books. It's an all-timer for me, The Ritual. They made a film on it. It's on Netflix. Great movie. I think I've seen only, the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the guys out there in the uh, Arctic Circle get lost or in the Scandinavian wilderness, I guess. They go on a camping trip. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're out in the woods, and of course, there's uh, there's some. They're not alone. Uh, they're being hunted, and the mythology behind that. It wasn't just a creature feature, a beast in the woods, you know, something in the woods hunting them down. It was the mythology behind that, the origin that truly. It's just fascinating. I encourage you to read it, and if you've seen the movie, it you know, I still found immense enjoyment in reading the book. And, you know, I do wish I would have read the book prior to seeing the the movie, but it is what it is. I still love the, the book. It's an all-timer for me. And I'm currently reading Cunning Folk by Adam Neville. And uh, great book, great book. Uh, but I bring it up to say, you know, he he's more of a folk horror specialist. And, you know, because Ungodly more or less came about 
after reading so much of Koontz and King, who knows? I plan on reading a lot of Adam Neville here going forward, and there may be some type of folk horror to come about. Who knows? I don't discriminate in terms of creative dark fiction, and I certainly don't want to be pigeonholed in, in any one category. Yeah, Brittany Johnson went from Mississippi Blue to Maneater, went full-on dark romance. I, I'm still waiting on my copy to come in. I've got to check that out. Did you read it? No, I'm waiting on my copy to come in. Okay. Yeah, she. Okay. Uh, I was able to get in uh, when she was asking people if they wanted signed copies, so I got in, but she was waiting for all the orders or requests to come in before she sent them all out in bulk. So hopefully it'll come in this week. Well, I look forward to reading that one. And, you know, have you read Mississippi Blue? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Great book. Great book. Awesome book. Mm -hmm. um, and Brittany Johnson is an awesome writer. I mean, you read her book. I don't need to tell you that. And you spoke to another awesome writer, um, extremely smart. And that's Miss Monica Vogel. Absolutely. And, you know, her her science her scientific <laughs> pedigree is just absurd. I, my uh, fiance was listening to it. She was like, oh, my God, <laughs> I can't. Her, psycho her psychological foundation, uh -huh. her just off the cuff, how she can spin these advanced science, scientific topics. It's just uh, it was a, it, I didn't get to finish the conversation that you and Monica had. But what I did here, of course, it, it's Monica. And we've shared enough conversation. We've chatted even if uh, just just through, uh, you know, direct messages on the app. She can she can go. And she warned you and said, you know, be careful, because if you start talking about this, I will you know, I, I can't shut up about it. And she's right. And, and that's you know, that's great to see because that's clear evidence of passion right in her pursuit. And uh, it's clear because it's um, she is extremely knowledgeable in her field. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so to kind of redirect back towards we were talking about the ritual are you a, a fan of horror movies? I am. Okay. I am. I was introduced to them way too early. <laughs> My mom introduced me to horror way too early, and I never looked back. Yeah, I think I was a uh, horror was withheld from me when I was a child, so I think that's why I went neck deep into the uh, the real extreme stuff, like the uh, the French extremist movement and whatnot. Oh. So I was curious, uh, just as kind of a goofy question to throw out there, what would you say the best decade was for horror? Mm. Man, that's an awesome question. Well, I must admit there will be a degree of bias. I can't say it's the best, but there's a nostalgia element to the 80s because I was introduced to the Friday the 13th series, the Nightmare on Elm Street series, the... Halloween franchise. I was introduced to all those. And although they were horror, they were, I don't know. It, it was, you know, Halloween was on, on, on Halloween day. They played the marathon, showed almost all the movies. It, they didn't really spook me out too much because I saw enough Michael Myers characters walking around, uh, you know, out trick or treating or just, just out whatever. They, they didn't spook me, spook me out, but. I, I almost equate it to the a Christmas story. You know, Christmas, they're playing a Christmas story all day long on TBS, CNN, whatever it is. And 
on Halloween, you know, they're playing Halloween all day. So it's, it's a Halloween, it's a holiday experience. It's just something you do. But, uh, back to the question, I want to say it's between the eighties and the nineties. And I'm probably going to lean on the nineties because of everything was better in the nineties. Sports, NBA basketball, major league baseball, maybe not football. Yeah. I'll even say f- football was pretty good, but I liked it in the two thousands as well. But. Music in the 90s. That's the last great mm-hmm. decade, man. That's the last great. Yeah. You know, Scream originated out of that. Um, Wasn't uh, Seven? Was that later? Yes. Yes. 95. 95, yes. And what a stellar piece of work that is. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking about that the other day, that epic conclusion. Just, I mean, that that's that's masterpiece, man. Yeah, absolutely. Um, such a great movie. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen it. Every time I get to the end, I, it's still, it just packs a punch, man. Mm-hmm. The philosophy involved. Yes. Yeah. The planning, the plotting, mm-hmm. and then the ultimate conclusion and, you know, the lead up to it. And of course, it's almost like it, it, it doesn't, it's not ruined, even though you know the outcome, but it's almost amplified in a sense because you, you appreciate more of what what he's saying, Kevin Spacey is saying. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it doesn't matter how many times I hear it. When he says, become vengeance, become, and then he says wrath, and it dawns on you, oh, shit. This is yep. the, oh, my God, this is the seventh sin. Oh, yeah. no. You appreciate it that much more, and it almost, it hits harder when he says it. After you already know what's coming, you know? Yeah. No, seven was great. Um you know, to, to tie it back into the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, uh, they came out. I'm not, you know, uh, they were just milking. Uh, they were just continuing to milk the cow with some of those sequels. And, you know, after the first one. But I will say when Wes Craven got back involved and released Wes Craven's new nightmare, and that was 94, I want to say that was a great movie. Uh, of course, it's more. More suited for the, uh, if you're already a fan of the franchise, but great, great movie. They reinvented Freddy Krueger. I mean, he had this demonic, evil look about him. And, uh, you know, Craven spin on the movie within a movie kind of take. I don't know if you saw it, but it was, it was very clever and it wasn't just another cheesy sequel, uh, milking off the tea. You know what I mean? It, it was reimagined and all new. Uh, within that that universe of, of Freddy Krueger and the Nightmare on Elm Street. Did you ever see that movie Martyrs? I did not. People that listen to this podcast are going to start thinking I'm a broken record. As, as, many, as many times as I ask about that movie, it's a, it's a French film. It's from 2008. There was a remake in 2015 that just don't watch. But but you talk about it's got a uh, an ending that blows the ending in seven away. Like it is just no so psychologically mind blowing. You've got to it's it's, you know, part of the French extremist movement. So you've got to sit through some pretty brutal violence to get to the to the end because the the uh, the payoff isn't until like the last I want to say 10 minutes of the movie. It just all comes together beautifully, just tied with this beautiful bow and put in your lap right at the end. Cause you're wondering throughout the whole movie, what is going on? What is wrong with these sick, twisted people? Um, but 
Yeah, it's uh, Martyrs. Martyrs. 2008. It's it's a French film. You're going to have to, you know, look at subtitles, but it's incredible. I have no problem with subtitles. Um my Unless you speak French. For it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll have to check that out, man. What's uh, the life of Braden Riddick like outside of writing? Dad life, man. Dad life? It is the uh, dad life and, of course, work life. But, you know, work life, of course, gets stress- stressful and it's eventful. But I-, I try not to complain about my profession because it, it affords me the opportunity to provide uh, for my family. So. You won't hear me complaining about that, but parenting is no doubt that is the, uh, that is the challenge because what I love about parenthood is it prevents me from getting complacent. I don't care how well you've accomplished a task any given day. The next day, there's going to be a new challenge. Do not rest on your laurels just because you got it figured out today. Tomorrow is going to present a whole new challenge and. The chaos that can come about with parenting is that's what keeps you on your toes and blessed to have the two boys. Uh, don't get me wrong. They will drive you crazy uh, in a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. And and, and I've, I've joked about it. Some of uh, some of my readers have said, when are we going to get book number two, the follow up? I say, well, will you volunteer babysitting services? And uh, Absolutely. Yeah, I'll come over and watch. I'm like, OK, all right, maybe not. But we'll see. But. Yeah, beyond that, my my true passion when the stars align and I'm able to get out there, I tr- I try to play golf uh, when I have free time and I'm able to get away. That is, that's my game now, man. That's that's the way I I channel those that competitive drive. And yeah, I'm not crazy about playing this time of year. I don't care for summertime at all. But uh, and it's been nearing a hundred degrees out there and humid. Oh God, and that's just. It's just, it's just not worth it, man. No. Because as even if you find a way to have fun in the in the misery of the of the heat of the day, and, and the next day is when you pay for it because it's it's the taxing effect. It's that cumulative effect that you're gonna feel that you were out there in a hundred degrees for four hours, and you know, gonna systematically um, leach all the fluid out of your body. <laughs> oh yes, yes, and and not to mention, you know. You've got two boys who are begging you to throw them baseball, throw them football and wrestle. And they're not hearing that you're taxed and you're, you're gassed. Um, they're, they're ready to play. You have the okay? same recovery time as they do. There's no difference. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, no excuses, dad. <laughs> I hear you're a bit of a sushi connoisseur as well. Man, to say I'm a connoisseur would be to say that I would discriminate against some type of sushi and I don't discriminate against sushi. I, I love it. Uh, and that's something that, you know, my wife was, was always so straight line in terms of traditional food she ate and just a traditional lifestyle she led in general. And I introduced her to sushi and she, she never looked back. That's one of those things that we both enjoy. She's still rather finicky and has a picky palate, but. Sushi is that thing that anytime we get a chance, you know, that date night pops up, it's sushi, man. I love it. How about you? Yeah, I don't really get too out there, like nothing with tentacles or anything like that. <laughs> but uh, 
<laughs> uh, None of the octopus. No, sashimi. no, no. I mean, I, I know you've seen it though. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I, I avoid it. <laughs> There's no mistaking what it is, right? Yeah, no, not you know at I mean? all. You, That's you, why I'm <laughs> like, I can't, I can't put that in my mouth. I'm sorry. <laughs> Did uh, all the other sushi and the sashimi? It's like I don't know what that is. But this purple and white yeah. piece of flesh with with, with the suction cups, uh-huh. I know what that is. That's just smooth, like smooth flesh. This this other thing is gonna just. Uh, I've seen too many horror movies. I feel like it's gonna be like Alien when something just blows out of my chest. Some monster. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a movie! By the way, Ridley Scott. Did you ever see that uh, Netflix documentary Euro Dreams of Sushi? I did not. If you can find it, I don't know if it's still on Netflix or not, but it's about this 10 seat sushi bar that's in a Tokyo subway tunnel. And it, uh, you know, received three Michelin stars, but uh, people make reservations for this place like months in advance. And Euro, you know, this was in 2011 that this was released and he was 85 at the time. So I'm sure he's passed by now. So I don't even know if it exists anymore. But he was so draconian about the standards that he kept his sushi chefs. He would make them uh, make egg sushi for years until he felt that they had got it right before he'd let them touch anything else. And there was a scene in the movie where his son and one of the guys that works for him went to a fish market and they were there for like two and a half hours and left with nothing because nothing (laughs) measured up to their standards. So, no uh, kidding. yeah, it didn't dawn on me when Monica was saying how she's going to do a research fellowship in Japan for the summer. I was like, you need to find out if that sushi place still exists, because I think she's going to be either in or near Tokyo. So, but yeah, I would definitely she's traveling abroad. She's heading out that now. What's that? What's the name of this? Uh, Euro. It's spelled J.I.R.O. Euro Dreams of Sushi. Euro Dreams of Sushi. Mm-hmm. OK. Yeah. Noted. Well. So as we bring the uh, show to a close, you said that you haven't ruled out plans for future works. You did make mention that maybe something could come out that possibly deals with the origins of the tower. Is that, mm-hmm. is that what I remember correctly? You know, there's nothing concrete, but I want to leave that opportunity alive. And for one, let's face it, I do love certain things um, left open um, to interpretation and in doing so, that's not just being that's not just being elusive. That's I will not rule out. In fact, I, I've, I've entertained an idea based around that, if not exploring more uh, of the outer circle. And, you know, again, there's nothing concrete, but let's let's face it. Brainstorming is where most of the important stuff happens, even before anything. The writing to me. Yes. Yes. You got it. You got to do it. But it's. It's finding the initial motivation to uh, brainstorm enough and, and formulate this, uh, formulate a, a sense of a, of a sound story in your mind before I can really get excited uh, and start writing something. I, again, it's having some destination in mind uh, because I've, I've started too many stories and just, just started writing free flow stream of consciousness style deal and just lost interest. And it's just abandoned. And I don't want to waste that kind of time anymore. I know what can happen when you set those mile markers, you set those distant buoys out there, you set targets 
And whether you hit them or not, just have something to aim at a general aiming point and go from there. And, you know, everything in season, man, uh, everything has its time and it's, and it's season. And if the backstory behind the coming about of Ungodly doesn't, you know, prove that I have patience, I'm not going to rush anything. And the, to the folks out there who, who do produce regularly, uh, quarterly, semi-annually, <laughs> annually, whatever that may be, uh, tip of the cap. That's just not my style. Uh, you know, I've mentioned Thomas Harris many times. I, I've got a few folks who I'm grateful for. I truly appreciate them, uh, their readership and their, their encouragement. And they're like, I, I hope you're writing your next book. When are, when are we going to get? And they're, they're persistent about it. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm still, I'm okay right now. I said, the time isn't now in time. I said, but, uh, I said, you remember Thomas Harris? So, yeah, I know Thomas Harris, I, but I'm talking about Braden Riddick. I said, well, look, you know, his first book he, he, he released compared to his, his next, it was six to eight years. Okay. And six books in total over a 50 year span. So, you know, do the math, divide it up a little bit. And clearly there was no semi annual, annual release to expect, uh, from Thomas Harris and, you know, I get it. Everything now in this cancel culture and the consumerism uh, and, uh, of content, people want more now. Uh, they don't like to wait. And I understand that. And it's something I appreciate. But no delayed know, right gratification. Now, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, but right now it's it, writing and uh, book writing is not in season. I'll say it like that. But down the road, I yeah. Yeah, for sure, man, because it, it doesn't just, especially now that so many people have validated this, this wicked brainchild of mine. <laughs> and I'll never, I'll never get over that. I, because I never would have expected so many to have truly latched on to it and, you know, reached out. Yeah. I played, uh, I played your, um, your summation of events. You're very cool. Uh, clip that you, you recorded and released not that long ago. I played that for my wife and she was like, that is awesome. And his voice, he did it so well. You did, man. <laughs> Bravo for that. That's, that was awesome. Appreciate to hear. that. Oh, thank you. So, uh, just one final question. What would you say is the most important thing you want readers to take away from the book? That there's always a way to overcome. There's always a way to win, even against seemingly insurmountable odds. That's what I took away from it at the end. Uh, when I finally got away from it, and again, I didn't go into it uh, with hopes of delivering some altruistic message, some profound meaning. Now, that's not to say that profound meaning cannot come about or did not come about, but definitely I came away from the story with a sense of um, when there's purpose and there's passion involved and there's reason and motivation. No odds are, are, are insurmountable. Uh, you can find a way to win. That's not to say it's going to be rainbows and butterflies on the other side, but in the end, even with a few scars, it's a win. Drop the mic on that one. <laughs> should i should i throw these corded no, headphones no 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 please don't it'll, it'll be really loud <laughs> i've got i've got noise canceling headphones on it'll be really loud um oh. so well i've had a blast 
thank you for for joining me on the show. Had a great time talking with you, and uh, I wish you continued success on the book and all areas of your life, for that matter. Vince, thank you so much for having me. Uh, this has been a treat, and uh, your questions were absolutely stellar, so well articulated, and um, insightful angles. And uh, absolutely, right back, right back to you. Nothing but the best. And uh, I, I see you're active over there on Instagram. Um, look forward to uh, chatting with you, and uh, look forward to hearing some of this uh, stellar podcast production you've got coming up for us. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. All links are in the description. And if you want to support the work of the indie writing community, make sure to leave a review on Amazon. This is not only a positive reflection for the author, but the more reviews the author gets, the more visible they become in the search results when customers type in keywords. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. I've been up and I've been down and I've seen it all. Was in the gym working my shot, now they passed me the ball. They never answer when I call, now I'm the one they call. I've done been up and I've been down and I've seen it all. Uh, crazy when you really gotta get it out the mud. Duck and paparazzi ain't the same as duck and slugs. Keep your circle small cause they be faking with the love. And always have your own back if push come to shove. Uh, mama said we been but never focus, they be watching. Been down and I done seen it all. Was in the gym working my shot, now they pass me the ball.